God's activity in our lives is that it was not good, or that it was uh, difficult or hard, or that it should have gone differently. Um, this morning provides us, you know, some illustrations. I plan to have the Lord's Supper with you. I've been planning to have the Lord's Supper with you for like a year today. <laughs> um, but due to, you know, health concerns, we've decided to wait. You know, we have plans. We make numerous plans, and yet God has a plan, and his plan is best. And sometimes we don't immediately see how God's plan in that moment is best, and yet it is best. In this passage of Scripture, though, God reveals his plan, and as he reveals his plan, he immediately shows Paul and Silas and those who are accompanying them why his plan is best and how it outworks and how it is a good plan and why we should then trust God and pursue obedience to his plan. But for you and I, sometimes what it looks like is we just simply look to acknowledge the truth of Scripture and say, God, you are sovereign. We're going to trust and follow you regardless of whether or not we understand or see how that plan is going to unfold for and so this passage helps you and I to have a firmer, greater confidence in the sovereign outworking of God's plan. And it calls you and I to then join in in pursuing God's plan. If you will take your Bible and let's turn to um, Acts chapter 16, and we'll start in verse 6 and we'll read through verse 40. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with them, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision immediately, he sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony, and we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out to the city, to the riverside, where prayers were customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who were there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul, and when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now it happened, as we went to prayer, that a certain slave girl, possessed with the spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune this girl followed Paul and cried and us cried and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her master saw that her hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace of the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, 
These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs that are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. When the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods, and when they had made, laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword, was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and ran in and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food, <coughs> he set food before them. And he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers, saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sinned to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly and condemned Romans and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out? Secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out to the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you do lead us. You lead us through your word. You lead us through the faithful teaching of your word. You lead us through uh, the faithful explanation and communication of your word in private conversations that we have. And you lead us to people who you want to know you. You've led us each to unique living situations in which um, we can all look at different aspects and details of how we ended up in the home that we lived in or the apartment that we live in, and we can see that you placed us there. We pray that as we contemplate the fact that you have put us where you put us, that you would help us to have a, a desire and a passion to see the people that you put in our lives uh, come to know you as their Savior. We pray that as we rejoice in your leading, uh, that you would be honored and that you would be glorified today. In your name we pray. passage, I believe, has a theme that would be similar to this. You could say it differently, but joyfully follow the Lord's leading as His ways are best. Joyfully follow the Lord's leading as His ways are best. God closes some doors. And that's how the text starts out, actually, is with God closing doors. And He's prohibiting ministry from happening in some areas 
of the Roman world. And, and so as you begin looking at the text, God's plan prohibits the missionaries from sharing the gospel in Asia and Bithynia. It's really quite clear as the text begins that you know they left through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, and they're forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And then they go on a little further, and they come to Mysia, and then they're like, well, we're here. We're no longer right next to Asia. Let's try to go into Bithynia and explain to them the ways of the Lord and tell them about Jesus Christ and the fact that he's, he's provided them with salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection. And what happens? But the Spirit did not permit them. You see, God's plan sometimes closes doors. Sometimes you and I don't understand why he's closing those doors. But does God have a good plan in that? Yes. It's interesting, as you and I consider, you know, why is God prohibiting this? It's really just as simple as it's how he's working. And we don't necessarily need to know why and how and what are all involved in these decisions. What you and I need to know, though, is that this is how he's leading and following. It is encouraging to me, though, that as you read in other parts of Scripture, does, does God allow the people in Asia and Bithynia to die without the gospel being preached to them? No, he doesn't. When you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Peter introduces himself, and he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. See, God's plan isn't that we're not going to include these people. It's God's plan, though, that that's not who's you're going to. I have a different mission for you. And it's a good mission. And it should be an encouragement to you enough that as God sometimes says no to various opportunities, to various places that you and I would have a desire to enter into and to go and work there and to see people come to know Christ, that he's not necessarily always saying no to that forever. He may be just saying no to you at this time and in this way. And so God is leading, and as the text continues, God reveals his perfect plan for the mission team. Notice in verse 9, they now reach Troas, and as they reach Troas, they decide to sleep. And as they're sleeping, what happens? God comes to Paul, and he tells him specifically what he wants him to do. He's gotten two negative commands from the Lord. Don't go to Asia. Don't go to Bithynia. And now here there is a positive command, a vision from the Lord. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So God does close some doors, but as he does that, he opens other doors. And that's what you see transitioning here. He closes the one door, and he says no to Asia. He says no to Bithynia. But he does open this door to go to Macedonia. Macedonia, if you would like, you could think of it maybe like as a state or a bigger region. 
And then Philippi is a big city within that region. Think Des Moines inside Iowa. Okay. So this guy from Macedonia is you know, waving at them and saying, come over and help us. And they're like, wow, God is still leading. You have to think that Paul, as he's you know, experiencing this whole situation and he's, he's seeking to go on another missionary journey and he's seeking to you know, expand the, the land that the gospel has reached, he's somewhat confused about what exactly is God doing. If you remember in Acts chapter 13, they're just worshiping together in Antioch, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes, he fills the room, and he's like, take Paul and Barnabas and send them on the journey to go and tell others about me. And they go and they do that, and they see God work miraculously, healing people, saving people that you and I would probably, you know, be like, that's eh, very unlikely that that person will get saved. But God does it. And then they come back to Jerusalem, and in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem church goes, yes, this is indeed how God is working. And they get this new message in Antioch, and they're all cheerful, and they're happy, and they're rejoicing in how God is gracious to them. And Paul and Barnabas are like, we need to go and tell all these other Christians that we've just made. Not that they made them, but they've you know, helped to plant these churches. We need to go encourage them with these truths too. That God's grace is abounding. And they go and they do that. They encourage all these troops. And then they tell them this, and then they're like, we should keep going and telling other people. And God says two different times, no to Asia, no to Bithynia. And then he arrives here in Troas, and God says, yes, go to Macedonia. And so God opens that door, and as he opens it, they arrive and they settle in the largest, in one of the largest uh, city Macedonian cities. They settle in Philippi. And as they go where they expect to find Jews. Notice as he continues in verse 11 and following, therefore trailing, sailing from Taras, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia calling. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went on out of the city to the riverside where prayers were customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who were there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us, who was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. And so, what did they do? Paul himself has told us in Rome that, you know, the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So, he's looking for where do people already know something about who God is? where he doesn't have to start at the very basics. Because if you go and you start ministering to a Greek individual with no knowledge of Jewish truth, you have to start at the very beginning. You have to start with the fact that there's one true God. They don't know that. You have to start with the truth that mankind is sinful. They've fallen away from God. If you find people that have been influenced by Jewish customs, they worship and they fear God, they're God-fears, they understand some of these basic things that you can build upon that. And then they you have a big group of missionaries already in that city that live there, that know people, that can then go and tell their friends, hey, I know more of the story about how God is redeeming mankind. And so they go and they minister to Lydia. And as they minister to Lydia, Lydia is a Gentile, and she hears the message, and God opens her heart to salvation. And this is Lydia's 
Lydia's life then is transformed by the power of the gospel. Lydia's life is transformed, and you see this in a number of different ways. You see that she's baptized. Baptism is a demonstration, a public testification to those around that you have believed in Jesus Christ and that you are intending to live your life as someone who has died with Christ, who has been buried with Christ, and was raised with Christ, to live in newness of life. He says this is what she's done. But then notice also that she's insistent that she find ways to minister right away. It's like, you have to stay with me. There's almost like this argument that's going on, a pleasant argument, but an argument nonetheless, where like, She's very insistent, like, you have to come and stay with me. I have the ability financially, space-wise, to care for you, to provide for you while you minister here. And so her life is obviously transformed. But as the text continues to develop and you see God's plan continue to unfold, and as, you know, uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy and those who are with them are watching God's plan unfold, God doesn't simply open doors, he actually uses all sorts of things, even unbelievers, to advance his plan. There's this slave girl in Philippi. And Paul meets her as he's heading on his way to go and pray in verse 16. And she comes and she is possessed with a spirit. She's not a believer. She's someone who is demon-possessed. And through this spirit, she is able to tell people prophecies about their life. It seems that at least a good percentage of the time, she was accurate. And this ability allowed the people who owned this slave girl to get immense profit, the text tells us. This lady is compromised. She was probably somebody who was somehow attached to a local deity. And while you and I use terminology like the Most High God, and we understand immediately what we mean by that. Because we're in this context, and this context, this building, has only had the term the Most High God refer to one individual. right? It's not like there's confusion about whether this is the Phoenician God, or if this is the God that's Patrick Zeus, or if this is some other God. We know that when we use the Most High God, we're referring to the one true God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who we're referring to. Who sent his son to die for us. We know who we're talking about. But in this context, where this lady is someone who is part of other foreign deities, she's walking around, and she's confusing and she's walking behind Paul, and she's proclaiming, these are the people who are the messengers of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And so there's this confusion. Is this lady who is a fortune teller? Is she important in helping people understand that they should listen to this guy? And if so, is she somehow attaching her deity to the deity that Paul and Silas are proclaiming. And Paul doesn't want the association. And the text actually says, Paul greatly annoyed her and said to the spirits, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. 
They came out of her that very hour. Paul became annoyed. Why? I think that the reason he became annoyed was not because what she said was not true in and of itself, but the context surrounding her claims. The fact that people didn't know whether or not she was speaking for the other gods compromised the message. And so Paul separates himself from her. And so as he separates himself from her, the missionaries are arrested, and then they're accused of various crimes. They seize them, and they drag them to the marketplace of the authorities. And as they do that, notice what they say. They say that they're Jews, which is you know, a key component of the rest of the story. If they're Jews, then that's a different legal proceedings that we take for them. And then they go on and they say, it's not legal for us as Romans to embrace these truths. Once again, this is something else that Paul is going to develop and build upon, I think, later on. And so they accuse them of these things, and what happens is they are publicly beaten. Their clothes are torn away from them, and they're beaten, and then they're given over to the jailer who throws them in the innermost prison. And as they're thrown into the innermost prison, this probably brought some questions of the veracity of their message. Right? Here, this slave girl who is associated with the foreign deities around her proclaims, hey, this is the, these people are servants of the Most High God, and they're going to give you the message of salvation. And here, now what has happened to these people? Are they doing well? Are they accepted? No, they're not. They're thrown into prison. And so people are probably going, these people are really servants of the Most High God. Why are they in prison? That's absurd. doesn't make any sense. Because the Most High God would certainly protect his servants, right? He wouldn't allow them to be treated this way. What's going to become of them? And so it brings up questions about whether or not God is actually behind their message. But notice how the text concludes. Because God's plan isn't done. God's plan isn't simply so that his message is proclaimed. His desire is to see people delivered. And notice how he delivers different people. He's going to deliver, actually, in a sense, three different groups of people. He's going to deliver Paul and Silas from prison. He's going to deliver the Philippian jailer from darkness into light. And then he's going to deliver the church from future dangers of persecution. Look at the following verses. Verse 25 Despite their circumstances, Paul and Silas began praising God. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And God delivers them as a subsequent uh, demonstration of superiority, superiority to other gods. So they're, they're gathered together. The other prisoners can hear them. This is completely weird, probably by any standard of what was considered normal in the Philippian jail. All of a sudden, at midnight, a group of believers began singing and praising God. And then what is weird becomes completely miraculous. And there is an earthquake that opens the doors of the prison and releases the shackles on people's arms. 
That's not how earthquakes typically work. Typically, earthquakes knock down buildings, they shake up a building, but they don't typically make chains come off people's arms, and they don't swing doors that are locked wide open. That's not how this works. And so this is the situation. All of a sudden, God delivers them to demonstrate that he is different from these other gods, that he's more powerful than these other gods. And the jailer then is delivered from darkness into light. So the doors are swinged wide open, everyone's chains were loosed, and the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called out with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You remember, this is, this is the jailer who was entrusted with these guys. Whether he was out and about in town when this servant girl who was demon-possessed encountered Paul and Silas, or whether you know the magistrates beat them and they brought him in with the charges that were against him and said, this is what's happened. These guys are making a ruckus in the city. Keep them in the inner cell. Do not let them out. They're troublemakers here. He's heard about this servant girl. He's heard her proclamation that she's said. And now all of a sudden, this demonstration of God's deliverance and care for his servants. And he's been hearing them singing praise to God something that he's probably never heard before. And all of a sudden he's like, how do I get what you guys have? How can my life be so drastically and radically transformed by the truth that you proclaim? And notice what they say to him. They say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night washed their stripes, and immediately he and his family were baptized. When he had brought them into their, his house, he set food before them, and he, he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. See, God's delivering people. And this is this is demonstration that God's plan is best. That's why you and I need to pursue knowing what God's plan is, and then once we know what God's plan is, to follow it because God's plan brings blessing. God's plan brings fullness of joy. So the jailer is delivered, but then notice the magistrates are forced to acknowledge the legal standing of the church's leadership. If you remember, when these owners of the slave girl first bring Paul and Silas before the magistrates, they say, hey guys, these guys are Jews, and it is not legal, it is not right, for us as Romans to adopt what they're saying is contrary to who we are. And so as the magistrates wake up the next morning, they probably heard about what happened in the prison and like, that's weird. Maybe they are servants of the Most High God. Let's let them out and get them out of town before we have any more problems. And so the message comes to Paul and Silas. Hey, you've been delivered from prison. You are free to go. Have a nice life. And Paul's response is, not so quickly. Not so quickly. We are Roman citizens, and they've mistreated us. 
not only is it not legal for Roman citizens to embrace this, we are Roman citizens who are teaching this. We have legal standing. What you did was completely illegal. We could have you removed from office and never be appointed to government office again for your acts. And I believe what Paul is seeking to do is he's seeking to establish and put the church in a position of safety, at least for a while. Why? Because the magistrates, next time they look at a Christian who is disrupting the peace in Philippi, what are they going to think? The last time we arrested one of those guys, turned out to be a Roman citizen, and we almost lost our jobs. Let's not be so hasty. It puts the church in a position of safety and ability to move forward and to see more people come to know Christ. It puts them in a position of being delivered, so to speak, at least for a time period, from the legal difficulties that could have arisen for them. And so God's plan works out. It's, it's a good plan. People from Asia and Bithynia still have gospel testimony through those who are dispersed from Peter's church. And Peter writes them and he says, hey, you guys are suffering. Continue suffering well. Live for Christ. He says, Paul, my plan isn't for you to go to Asia and Bithynia right now. My plan is for you to go to Philippi. Why? Because Lydia's there and she needs the Lord. Because the jailer is there and he needs the Lord. It's interesting. One of the things that Luke does regularly as he recounts for us the life of Christ and as he recounts for us the work of the apostles through the Holy Spirit is he regularly puts men and women together. And so Jesus is announced. And as Jesus' coming is announced, you'll notice that it's announced to both a man and a woman. Jesus heals men and women. When the gospel comes, Jesus, or, or Paul goes and he heals men and women. And here, Luke once again takes specific time to record for us, Jesus saves Lydia, a woman, and Jesus saves this unnamed jailer, a man. Why? I think one of the things that Luke is seeking to communicate to you and I is that God's plan is for everyone to have the gospel preached to them. God's plan is not limited to one people group or another people. God has a desire to see his message go to all people. He wants people to come to salvation. And so I think that's one of the things that Luke is doing kind of behind the scenes. He's once again showing us salvation in one geographical area, coming to both men and to women. And he's making a statement like that, saying God's salvation is available to all people. God's desire is that salvation would come to all people. And so as we uh, God orchestrates a masterful plan to advance the gospel, and he ensures that his plan is fruitful. That's what's being portrayed here. And the church is set up now with a meeting place in Lydia's home, and with the legal standing that they have now as their leaders are Romans, so you can't come and say, it's not legal for Romans to be Christian anymore. Well, the people who started the church here were Romans. You can't say that anymore. God makes sure that his plan 
goes forward. God makes sure that his plan is successful. And so as we think about application in this passage, I think that one of the applications that you and I need to take from this is that God's plan is perfect. And primarily in the text, his emphasis is on the fact that God's plan is perfect in bringing people to salvation. That's primarily what this text is dealing with. But for a broader application, as we step back and we look at the, the big truth that he's teaching about who God is, he's telling us that God leads. And so that means that in your health difficulties, God is leading. That in your financial difficulties, that God is leading. That in your struggle with sin, that God is leading. And he does that through his word. And his plan is perfect. So you and I need to turn ourselves over to God's perfect plan and to trust it. Because as we do that, whether it be in you know the myriad of circumstances that we face where we need God's plan, or whether it be in specifically following his leading as he puts unsaved individuals in our life who need the gospel message of Jesus Christ, as we follow him in obedience, obedience will bring fruitfulness. That's how fruitfulness comes. Your life and my life is not fruitful unless we're following him in obedience. And so it should challenge us that as God lays out his plan, as he makes his plan for us this coming week, that we would follow it because that's the path towards fruitful, fruitfulness. Disobedience will not bring fruit. And then God delights in saving. He delights in saving people in Asia. He delights in saving people in Bithynia. But in this text, he specifically highlights his desire to save people in Philippi, both men and women. Both those who were God-fearers, who were Greeks, who were looking into the truth of who God was, and those who were far off. The Philippian jailer, who it seems had no understanding of who God was, but he sees the truth as it's revealed in their singing psalms, as they're singing and proclaiming praise to God, and he sees the power and truth of God's work at work in the deliverance from jail, and he says, that is true, I want it. God delights in saving people, and it's his plan to save people. And it's your responsibility, and it's my responsibility, to also delight in to be looking for the opportunities that he gives you in that so that we can take those and that we can be fruitful individuals. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that your plan is best and that your plan, as we follow it in obedience, brings about fruitfulness. We pray that you would help us to have a great delight in seeing unsaved people come to know you. And that as we have opportunity, that you would give us the boldness and the courage that is necessary to take your truth and to give it to those who have not heard your truth. And that as we do so, that we would see people come to know you. We thank you for who you are. In your name we pray.